Welcome back. In case you're wondering, this is episode 10 of Tales from the Subterranean Playground. And as always, I'm your host, Mark Allen J. I was thinking about how to do this podcast, and I kind of arrived at this probably through some events that happened relatively recently that had me thinking. If you know me, you know that I'm getting on in years. However, there's something about aging that gives you wisdom if you're lucky, but it also teaches you to appreciate and notice certain things that maybe you didn't when you were younger. As they say, youth is wasted on the young. There's a lot of truth in that. And I don't mean to drive a wedge here between young and old. This is just an observation. But I decided for this podcast that I was going to talk about some experiences that had profound effects on me. And as you might expect, they have to do with technology, and they are related because they both pertain to audio and music. I should probably start off by saying that I was reading at a relatively early age. At least, that's what my parents always told me. It's a pity I don't read as much as I used to, but when I was young, I had a voracious appetite. And one of the things that I did, many of us had this in our uh, family home, if you're of my generation or similar. We either had the uh, World Book Encyclopedia or we had some other manner, a tome of information, as it were. In addition, one of the things that my dad, who was an engineer, did was he purchased this multi-volume set of books. And I think there were about 16 of them in all. I can't quite recall. But the point is that in each of these books, there were all these DIY, that is do-it-yourself projects that were described in each one. And my sort of modus operandi in my early years and uh, whatnot was to sit down and grab one of these books and read, just thumb through it, and then see if I saw one of these projects that I thought was cool. And if I did, I'd pour over it and try and understand how they were doing what they were doing. And it occurred to me that you could, if you had something in front of you, if you had a plan, if you had a series of steps, you could, were you to follow those steps, build this thing that you were looking at. And I think part of that went hand in hand with my dad's business. He being a builder, it's one of the things I always loved seeing were houses under construction because I saw the process. I saw the parts going together. And you could see if you went back a week later, oh, the plumbers have been here and the piping is all in. The electrician has run the wires. I had an acuity. I had an appreciation for wanting to see how things go together, seeing how things work. And I don't know if this is where I saw it, but somewhere I saw an article or an advertisement for a crystal radio, and I was puzzled by this. Now, crystal radios also went by the name cat's whisker radios. And I'll talk a little bit more about the cat's whisker in a bit, but right now I want to focus on the concept of the crystal radio. This is the mid-60s. So you're talking about the transistor revolution, and it was a revolution. You might recall either you or perhaps one of your siblings had a transistor radio, and it was a miracle at the time because the world was transitioning from vacuum tubes, and while they have their place, I'm not going to debate that here, while they have their place, the transistor arguably made it possible for devices to be small, portable, 
and utilize far less power than it would take to use, uh, rather to implement a system based on tubes. So in this era of the transistor radio, you may recall it was common to see people having them in a shirt pocket, a pocket radio effectively. Often plugged into that was that earpiece. And you might remember this kind of like a tan-colored earplug had a twisted pair of wires that went down to a little one-eighth inch plug. And marvel of marvels, you could have this thing in your ear and be listening to your favorite AM radio station while you went about doing whatever it was that you were doing. Fantastic. Music, news, information, whatever was your thing, you could have it with you. And that was cool. The crystal radio was actually the first form of radio receiver that was out there. And if you don't know what a crystal radio is, I'm not surprised. Only geeks and people of a certain age and, and let's say, having a certain set of interests know what a crystal radio is. But in a nutshell, it's a radio receiver that basically has a coil of wire. It has a device that slides along the top of that coil of wire. There's a capacitor in there as well. And the function of that is to form what's called a resonant circuit. And a resonant circuit is something that is very sensitive, very selective to one frequency and rejects the other. If you were to look at it on a plot, it would look like a very steep, stretched, bell-shaped sensitivity. So very selective. Here's the thing. AM radio, in fact, all terrestrial radio, has what's called a carrier, and then it's got the information. The carrier is the frequency that you see on the dial like on, on an AM receiver or on an FM receiver. The carrier is the thing on which the information rides. You can think of this as being like a surfer on a wave. The thing about radio is you need to do a process that's called demodulation. And demodulation is the process by which the information is recovered from the carrier. So the carrier kind of does the heavy lifting. The demodulator basically says, oh, this is what you're interested in hearing. Okay, so that's how, in essence, radio works. Now, crystal radios, they were eventually replaced by vacuum tube radios, which were eventually replaced by transistor radios, as we mentioned. And so there were certain crystals that had the right properties to help demodulate the signal. Now, here's the catch. We talked about vacuum tube radios, and we talked about transistor radios. Those two things had something in common, and that is they had a power source. In a crystal radio, there's no power source. That blew my mind. The power in the radio signal itself is what's being used to power the earphone. Now that's pretty cool. What I remember about it was putting the radio together with my dad and he helped me string the antenna wire. That's the other part that I forgot to mention. Attached to this coil is this long piece of wire that functions as an antenna. And this is nothing but a piece of wire. It's, it couldn't be more rudimentary, very basic. And when that kit was finished, I sat there with that earpiece in my ear, listening to various radio stations and being absolutely amazed. Here was this thing in front of me that I had built. And here I was listening to AM radio through this earpiece Nothing in front of me like a 9-volt battery or a D-cell battery or double A's. None of that was there. This was just happening as if by magic. And that's what it really felt like to me. I was hanging on every word. 
And I was thinking, this is happening right here, right now, and I'm hearing this. And I kept trying to figure out how it worked. But at that age, I just didn't have the acumen. But what I did have was an interest in this stuff like I had in little else. I mean, yes, I loved having various toys, etc. But there was something about electronics. There was something about sound. There was something about this sound coming out of nowhere, coming out of the ether. And there I was listening to it. And it captivated me. And going forward, I started thinking about electronics. My Uncle Bob, great guy, had this business building integrated circuits. Got in at the right time, right place, got some government contracts and did really, really well for himself. And he would come and visit my dad and their mom from time to time. And I do remember one time being at the table with him in East Lansing. We were all having dinner and I asked him, I think it was probably eight years old or something, I asked him, what exactly is a diode? And he kind of paused for a minute and said, you know what a gate is? And I said, sure. He said, well, that's kind of what a diode is. It's meant to let things pass in one direction and not the other. I thought that was really cool because it was a very concise, watered down, but you know, not necessarily, let me explain this to you in terms of the particle physics and the device physics and how the, the materials have to be manipulated to make that happen. He realized none of that was going to sink into my tiny little brain. But he gave me the answer that I needed at the time. Like they say in The Matrix, he told me what I needed to hear. It's a good way to look at it. Now, I mentioned the diode because it was part of the crystal radio. A moment ago, I mentioned this process, the idea of demodulation, where I said the information you want is riding on the carrier. So in other words, the music the news broadcast, the weather, whatever it is. So the diode is an integral part of the crystal radio, and that's related to that cat's whisker that I mentioned also when I first described it. But it came from, that is the name cat's whisker, came from this thin wire that was touching the surface that had a mineral on it. And I think it was called galena or galena. In any case, when that wire touched that material... It actually created this thing known as a semiconductor. A diode is a semiconductor, and so is a transistor. And it was that bit of crystal material with that cat's whisker that allowed the signal to be demodulated. Now, it wasn't very practical because you'd have to create it each time you built one of these radios. But research led to the discovery of the phenomenon and a way to control it, and that led to the invention of the diode. And so that diode was in that crystal radio set. So the diode was something I had learned about in broad terms. But knowing that my uncle ran a company that built electronic components, he seemed like the right guy to ask, which is why I did. I started thinking, well, what does it take to make a speaker? How does a speaker work? And I did some reading on that. And in one of the places that was indispensable for me was the Okemos Public Library, which was this tiny little library, but it still felt huge to me. I would peruse the library trying to find books about audio and speakers and things like that. And then I finally got to the point where I started building my own loudspeakers. And by no means had I mastered this. You learn from mistakes. The mistakes matter. The mistakes teach you that what you did here didn't work. How do you make it better? That's all part of the learning process. Building my own loudspeakers was great fun for me. They weren't great, 
but they were mine, and they didn't exist before I thought of them, went out and bought the components, built the cabinets, and put them all together. But one of the things that happens when people do these things is there's a certain amount of confirmation bias. You're so involved in the process. You're so involved in building this thing that didn't exist. Maybe it's your own creation. Maybe it's a kit. doesn't really matter. You're very involved in the process of giving birth to this thing. And when you're done, it becomes nearly impossible to be purely objective about its performance. That is to say, when you finish building that ribbon microphone kit, that'll be the best sounding ribbon you've ever heard. When you finish building that power amplifier kit, that'll be the best power amplifier you ever heard. It's very difficult to remain objective about these things. And I gradually started to understand that there were objective measures by which loudspeakers were evaluated. When I started building the loudspeakers, it soon became apparent to me that I'd inherited a record player from one of my brothers. And so I'd connected my speakers to that record player. And then it dawned on me, wouldn't it be nice to have something like a cassette deck in the era when Dolby noise reduction had come along? So it was they were doing a pretty good job of making decent-sounding cassettes, not the mass-produced ones, mind you. Those always sounded inferior to what you could do on a good cassette deck at home, and there are reasons for that, primarily because the mass-produced cassettes were done at high speed. And when you do these high-speed transfers, then when you play the tape back at regular speed, what you find is there's a loss of high frequency and so on, okay? So that's the Reader's Digest version. If you're doing cassettes in real time with a decent quality recorder and you're paying attention to things like the recording levels, you could make cassettes at home that sounded much better than pre-recorded cassettes. Now, I did score a few pre-recorded cassettes because my Aunt Bernice in Hamtramck, she worked at a music outlet in Detroit called Handelman's. And it was the greatest thing because, you know, here I was six, seven, eight years old, and I had this really awful Lloyd's or sound design cassette recorder, the kind of thing you see, you know, in an episode of the Brady Bunch, you know, something like that from the 70s. And she could get these cassettes from me at discount, which was great. <laughs> you know, my mom would talk to her on a Sunday night and say, Mark wants you to buy such and such, and my mom would send her a check, you know, and I would give my money, uh, you know, from KP and all that kind of stuff to my mom to pay for these cassettes. Anyway, I got to the point where I wanted to have my own cassette deck, and so I saved my money, saved my money, and I finally bought one, not knowing enough about stereo systems to make an informed decision, and that was the record player that had been given to me by one of my brothers had no means of interfacing with the cassette deck. I had no way of connecting it to record or to play back through the speakers. I could still play records, but that was it. So here I had this nice new cassette deck that I had saved for that I could really do nothing with. So then it dawned on me, okay, get past the shame. You're going to need to figure out a way to get an amplifier. And so once again, began the process of setting money aside until I finally bought my first integrated amplifier. An integrated amplifier is nothing more than a piece of equipment that incorporates what's called a preamp, uh, volume control, tone controls, and the ability to select sources, and a power amp. And the power amp is what drives the loudspeakers. 
So I bought a Sansui AU505. And then I realized, okay, now at least I can play back tapes and I can play them back through the speakers. But how do I get the signal from the turntable into my integrated amplifier? And that was a whole nother problem because, of course, I wasn't about to rip into this all-in-one system and try and figure out where to get the signal from the, uh, the tone arm. So then it dawned on me, I'm going to need a turntable. And again, didn't have the money, but I, I desperately wanted one. And I went to this place in East Lansing called Hi-Fi Buys. And I found this turntable. It was a Pioneer PL15D2. And it had a Shure M91ED phono cartridge on its tone arm. And I came home kind of longing for this. And I was talking to my dad about it. And I said, I really want to buy this, but I don't have the money. And would you loan me the money? And he kind of looked at me and said, hang on a second. And he picked up the phone. He asked, what's the name of this place? So I told him. And he looked it up in the yellow pages. And he called. And he basically asked if by any chance, they had something known as same-as-cash terms. I had no idea what he was doing. So after a brief conversation, he put the phone down and he looked at me and said, I won't loan you the money. And I, I thought, what a drag, right? He said, I won't loan you the money, but what I will do is this. They have a program that's basically credit. And I said, what's, you mean like a credit card? And he said, well, yeah, but a little bit different. And he explained to me that if you paid this off in 90 days, it was the same as cash, as if you had paid for it out of pocket. And I said, well, why? what's the advantage to that versus saving? And he said, the advantage is you can walk out the door with it. My jaw hit the floor. I was like, you're kidding. And he said, no, you. but you have to sign. And he said, the problem is you're too young to do this. Again, feeling crestfallen, and I kind of looked at him and he said, but with a cosigner, we can do this. And I said, what's a cosigner? And he said, the cosigner is someone who assumes the responsibility in the event that you can't do it or won't do it. And he said to me, so here's the deal. I'm willing to do this for you, but you have to promise me that you're going to pay this. You know, you will have to take the bus down there into East Lansing and pay this. You have to pay for it on time. But if you do that, I'll cosign the note for you. And you could have peeled me off the ceiling. I was I was ecstatic. I think we went down the next day, got the turntable, brought it home, and I plugged it into my Sansui AU505 integrated amplifier connected to my home-built speakers with its drivers from the Lafayette Radio Electronics store. How many of you out there remember that store? They were everywhere. They were everywhere. I built a three-way. It had a 15-inch woofer. I think a six-inch mid-range, and then it had a phenolic ring tweeter for the top end with, you know, some simple first-order crossover network that I threw together. Did they sound good? No, they didn't, but I had built them, so I thought they did. I thought they sounded great, but they didn't. But that didn't matter. What I had in front of me at that point was a turntable. I had speakers, and I had a cassette deck, and that meant that I could make my own cassettes. And I'd come to realize that if I made my own cassettes right away and put the record back on the shelf, I'd never really wear the record out. Records would accumulate dirt and scratches and things of that nature. But by recording my own, I had the best copy that I could possibly get off that record. 
This is when I first started to understand how to record something. Now, by that, I don't mean that I knew how to record a trombone or a trumpet or a double bass or an electric guitar properly. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is understanding the recording process and understanding how you set the levels, how you read the VU meters, how you learn to set the levels in such a way that you make the tape have the least possible amount of background noise while simultaneously having the least amount of distortion. But this was a great learning experience. Again, I mean, this cassette deck wasn't the best cassette deck out there. The turntable wasn't the best turntable out there, but they were adequate, and I was learning. And that was the cool thing about it. The more that I understood, the more I wanted to know. And this is when I started making pilgrimages to hi-fi shops and so on, and also where I found out about what it means to have a good pair of headphones and what that can do how that can change your music listening experience. So this was a very important period for me in my technical education, as it were, and my focus on sound, recording, technology, and so forth. Pretty powerful moments for me. Then came the day when I realized a good set of headphones could make a difference, and I don't remember where I heard my first pair of good ones. My dad had this pair of awful, I wouldn't call them headphones as much as I would call it a headset, and he used it primarily to listen to some of the aviation control tower out of Lansing uh, Capital Airport. He had a small receiver that would allow him to do that, and in retrospect, there was nothing remarkable about this headset. Definitely not high fidelity, nothing to write home about, as they say. But there came a time when I saved enough money to buy a pair of Koss Pro 4 AA headphones. And this meant two things. One, it meant that I could listen into the night hours without disturbing anyone. And two, it meant that I could hear records with far greater fidelity and far greater accuracy than what the speakers I had built could provide. And this was a game changer for me because I can't tell you How many times I would take them off, turn on the speakers, go back and forth, listen to one versus the other. And I'd realize there were things that I was hearing in the headphones that I was not hearing in the speakers. Now, a lot of that had to do with the poor quality of the loudspeakers. That's a given. But what I didn't get at the time was much of it also hinged upon the room acoustics. One of the things that people often forget about or simply don't know about is when you have speakers in a room, a room greatly influences what you perceive from the loudspeakers. So if you're in a room with very absorptive carpet, maybe like we have here in the subterranean playground, you've got a a velvet couch, a ginchy velvet couch, as it were. These fabrics act like sponges for acoustical information, right? And they soak up a lot of the reverberation. And so what I discovered was how much different things sounded depending on which room the speakers were placed. So I I started to understand something about room acoustics. But the fact is, and to this day, I tell people this all the time, a good set of headphones, and, and I don't mean esoteric, crazy, super overpriced headphones. You can find very good headphones for a few hundred dollars. They will allow you to hear things in detail that your loudspeakers almost never will. And again, it's not always dependent upon the loudspeaker. A lot of it has to do with the room acoustics. 
where we're recording this now has been treated. I treated this room, I designed it such that what we call the primary and secondary and tertiary reflections are minimized. What are those? Well, you think of that as like if you had a flashbulb on a camera. When that light goes off, it bounces all around the room, unless your walls are painted black and the ceiling is painted black, which tends to diminish the brightness. So it probably makes sense to you when you picture this room, the walls, the floor, the ceiling, painted flat black, that when that flashbulb goes off, the light's going to go out from the flashbulb and not much of it will be reflected. So that flat black paint is to light what the acoustical treatments are to sound. It's a little bit of a simplified comparison, but I think you get the point. So unlike speakers, when you wear a pair of headphones, the speakers, the little speakers in the headphones, are right next to your ears. But you can imagine a pair of speakers sitting in your living room, for example. The sound leaves them. It doesn't go directly to your ears. Some of the sound does. However, they mix, and they mix because of those reflections. So the more you treat those reflections, the more precise the image tends to be from the loudspeakers. Now, there's some discussion about that, some argument. Some people say if you have a room that's overtreated, it takes the life out of the music. And there's some validity to that. On the other hand, in a room that's heavily treated, you can hear much more detail from any given pair of loudspeakers. And that's because you're only hearing the direct sound from the loudspeakers. Or I should rephrase that. And that's because you're mostly hearing the direct sound. And that is an experience similar to wearing a pair of headphones. The listening room is such a critical part of this process. But what the headphones did for me then, and what they'll do for anyone now, is they make the room not a factor. Now, you can't walk around all the time with headphones. A lot of people would like to, but you just can't. The headphones were another game changer. They were another educational experience for me. And it also became really clear to me that with these headphones on, with the external world isolated, I didn't need to have very much volume at all because the background noise was so low and it was made low by virtue of the isolation that was provided by the headphones. So the last thing I want to talk about in this little journey story of mine is when I finally got to the point where I thought, I'd really like to have access to radio through my stereo system. In those days, you had preamps, integrated amps, and receivers. You could buy full separates, which let you mix and match, or you could buy a receiver and get it all done at once. I opted for the separates mostly out of my confusion about what I should buy and when. But here's the thing. There came a time when I really decided that I wanted to be able to listen to FM. And there was a local station, and it was FM. I think it was 101.3 on the dial. I can't remember. What matters is this. It was a fairly strong transmitter tower, and it wasn't far away. And that meant that I was going to receive the signal in very high quality. I didn't know it then, but I experienced it. And it went something like this. I ended up buying a kit for an FM tuner. The kit was made by Dynaco, and Dynaco was a company that came out of the 50s, 60s, and 70s that built and sold audio equipment. Now, the thing was, you could buy them fully assembled, 
But if you were willing to solder some things together, you could save about 35% off the purchase price. And me being the soldering, iron-wielding geek that I was, found this prospect simply too appealing. So I did. Once again, saved the money that I had earned working for my dad in his construction business and so on, mowing lawns, what have you. And I bought this kit. And I remember I put it together. I had, I had worked on it one day, got about halfway through. And then the next day, I think it was a Friday night, it was in the summer, and my mom had her easel kind of off to the side of the television set, and she loved movies, as did I. So we'd often watch The Late Show or The Late Late Show on Channel 6 out of Lansing, and they'd show classic movies. And my mom, I can remember her saying, oh, oh, you're going to like this one. This is a really good murder mystery, you know, or this is, you know, this is a really good comedy. And she loved painting at night. She painted into the wee hours. And I'm kind of a night person as well. So I had this table set up, and I decided, all right, this is where I'll, you know, this is like a Friday night. And I started working on it maybe, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. The late show comes on. Then the late, late show comes on. She's still painting. And at around, I don't know, 3 in the morning, something like that, I make the last connection. I put in the last screw on the cabinet, take it over by the wall, and I plug it in and turn it on, and it lights up. And there's no smoke coming out, as they say. All electronics run on smoke. It's when you let the smoke out, that's when they stop working. So about 3 o'clock in the morning, I schlep this tuner up to my bedroom, and I connect it to my integrated amp, and I tacked up the dipole antenna. I took the phone with the 30, 40-foot extension cord or whatever into my room, and I called WILS. Are you taking requests? And he's like, yeah, sure. And I said, could you play a song for me? And he said, what is it? And I said, Toledo Shuffle. And he said, Toledo Shuffle? I said, yeah. And he said, I think that's Lido Shuffle. Okay. Well, can you play it? And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll try and get it on in the next few minutes. So I turned the tuner on, put the headphones on, and it blew me away. It was basically the same reaction that I had to the crystal radio. The difference was this. What now had me was the fidelity. And WILS did a pretty decent job of not hyper-compressing the broadcast. They protected against clipping. They did limiting to prevent the peaks from distorting. But they really didn't squeeze the life out of music like you hear in a lot of uh, radio broadcasts. Certainly, on late night, the DJs had a different idea of what things should sound like. So I think maybe there was probably some awareness that they shouldn't hyper-compress the level of the audio signal. And let me tell you, I had the headphones on, the song that was playing faded out, and then Lido Shuffle started playing. It blew my mind because the fidelity through those headphones just shocked me. I mean, I had heard LPs, I had heard cassettes, etc., and they all sounded great, as did this. What separated it was confirmation bias. To me, that FM tuner couldn't have sounded any better. It, in my mind, whatever I paid for it, that thing was worth three times what I paid for it because there was nothing else out there that could possibly sound as good as this. Now, in absolute terms, is it the best FM tuner that was ever built? No. Was it a very good tuner? It was. But it was that experience of building it and putting it together that made it have intrinsically more value. And again, at the time, I didn't 
pay any attention to the confirmation bias. I simply thought it was the best tuner that there was. But it was that magic. It was that magic of hearing. I had called someone and asked them to play a song for me, and there it came out of the ether in full fidelity with basically almost no compression, sounding fantastic out of this little metal box. And there was the tuning strength indicator basically all the way up, full tilt, five by five, as some might say, dead full quieting in yet another form of the parlance. And that tuner was the bookend. It was the bookend of radio transmission for me. Here at one end, six years old, was the crystal radio. Here at the other end, I think I was 13 when I built the FM5. And both of them were magical, and they still are. That's the thing. Those are great learning experiences. If you have a son or a daughter, a niece or a nephew, a grandson, a granddaughter, whatever, kits can be a great way for them to expand their mind, to expand their horizons, to spark interest. It certainly did for me. I mean, it's something to think about when you're thinking about Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or birthdays or whatever. Helping a young mind develop is a wonderful gift. You may not be able to be a teacher and function in that capacity, but you can give things to individuals. You can give things to your loved ones that, like I said, might be that spark. You just don't know. It's worth rolling the dice. And if they dig it, maybe that takes them down a certain path. Maybe they find validation. Maybe they find fulfillment in a particular art, craft, science, technology. That's what I love about these kits. Anyway, I know that was a lot. I know that was long-winded. But I, like I said, I'd been thinking about it as of late. And you never know where motivation is going to come from. You never know where the spark of creativity might come from. And I think uh, Sandy and I recently watched The Fablemans, and I found that movie incredibly relatable and relevant to my own story. I'm no Spielberg, but what I, what I felt was I could understand the magic of that film. I could understand the magic of what he was seeing through his camera. In my case, it was what I was hearing through the years on either side of my head and the brain and the stuff that was going through it and thinking, how do they do that? And then finally, how can I do that? captivating. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Tales from the Subterranean Playground. As always, I'm your host, Mark Allen J. Until next time, peace. Tales from the Subterranean Playground is produced and brought to you by Immersify Recording Services, LLC.